We're going to finish up the book of Lamentations today. I used to think that Psalm 88 was the darkest section of the whole Bible, but now that we've gone through this book line for line, I was wrong. This, this book is, is the heaviest and darkest of all, I think, uh, of all, all the books of the Bible. And how can it not be for the time it was written and, and, uh, uh, and the despair of Jerusalem having fallen under siege warfare, the, just the th- air, the thickness of sadness and despair still thousands of years later hangs over the passage, passages as you, as you read it and as you read them. There is, a, if you visit uh, the Auschwitz concentration camp, there are plaques inside the camp that say this, They say, forever let this place be a cry of despair, a warning to humanity. And I think, as heavy as that is, that that's partly God's purpose for recording lamentations and keeping it for us in the Bible in all of its uh, heaviness and despair and graphic descriptions of suffering and and warfare uh, and, and, and pain. Uh, it is forever a cry of despair against our own human sinfulness. And so in that, it's very, it's very heavy and sobering, and it needs to be. This isn't a book or a preaching series that we can like really be laughing through or telling a lot of, you know, uh, having a lot of humor in it. And, and that's intentional. This has been intended to be an extended meditation going into Good Friday. Why was it necessary for God to die to save his creation? And that's an extremely heavy idea, that that's what it took. Uh, And so this book, in all of its weight, has been bringing that meditation to the surface. And so now we're at the last chapter. The final chapter is a bit different uh, we've, uh, we've seen in different perspectives throughout uh, the, the, the sin that's involved, the, the responsibility for sin, God's divine justice in, uh, in, the, actions, uh, the, in the actions that he takes against uh, Jerusalem. We've seen the shock factor uh, of God's justice and the purpose for that to shock his people back into their senses. Uh, and today at the end, the last chapter is a little bit different. Structurally, it's a little different. Um, uh, all the other chapters in this book are acrostic poems, meaning they all start with one letter of the Hebrew alphabet, one after another. One first line starts with A, second line starts with B. This last chapter doesn't do that. However, it keeps the same 22-verse construction. And part of the reason it's different is it's looking at it, it's coming from a different perspective rather than describing the siege and all of its horror in the midst of it. This is looking at it in perspective. Some time has passed. And now Jeremiah, or the author of this book, is reflecting on everything that happened and they have reached uh, a place, a good place, a place of brokenness where God can work. 
And so now let's listen. Let's read uh, together. If you would please stand. This isn't a very large, long chapter. Uh, So if you would please stand if you're able. If you're not, please feel free to stay seated as we listen intently together to God's inerrant word. This is Lamentations chapter 5. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are assaulted in Zion and young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill and the boys stagger under loads of wood. Old men have left the city gate and the young men their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. And for this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever and your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us, and you remain exceedingly angry with us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Maybe many of you have heard uh, about uh, the five stages of grief. A psychiatrist named Kubler-Ross came up with uh, these five stages of grief which were uh, meant to express these five stages that people would go through when grieving either their own death or the death of a loved one. And the five stages are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and then acceptance. Uh, I think this has come under some criticism lately and actually they've expanded it to uh, also at the same time expanded it to be uh, applicable to all different sorts of loss and as I was reading through this chapter and meditating on where Israel is at in this chapter it came to my mind that the five stages of grief also would serve could also serve as the five stages of the of grief the grief of losing an idol or the five stages of God ripping idols out of our hands more more legitimately there's the stage there's the first stage of denial where we either try to tell ourselves that this isn't really sin or or uh if it is it's not that big a deal it's not really hurting anyone and God wants me to be happy and so it's okay Anger is when we get a glimpse of God's real purpose for us, which isn't happiness as much as it's holiness, and we become angry with God. God, 
how could you take this away from me? How could you expect me to live without this thing that I need so desperately? Why, or why, why, God, would you let this thing happen to me? And then there's the bargaining stage. I'm, this is my specialty. Uh, where we start making deals with God in order to keep some hold on the sin. Okay, God, how about if I cut it down to... Uh, often this has the sense of bargaining with my sense and to present it to God later uh, where I'll ask for some extra prayer, some service work. Maybe I'll tithe some more and work out some sort of deal with God so I don't have to go cold turkey and lose my idol altogether. You know what I'm talking about. And then comes depression when I realize that's not going to work and I'm doomed to a life of sadness forever when nothing will ever be good again. And then finally, acceptance, which is repentance, saying the same thing about our sin that God says about our sin, that it is sin, that it is destructive, uh, and coming to grips and coming to accepting those terms and saying, okay, God, I trust you and do with me whatever you will, knowing that that is the best and safest place that anyone could ever be. And I think, why am I telling you this? I think Jerusalem has entered the final stage five of acceptance in this last chapter. In the aftermath of the siege, some time has gone by. Uh, They have been literally stripped of all of their dulling, spiritually dulling distractions uh, and have been left with no other option but to trust God and to seek his face. And in that acceptance, there's beauty. Uh, And so in this chapter, I think there's three big lessons that God teaches us. Three big lessons. And the first one, first one is that God can and will remove all obstacles that stand in our way, including his blessings. God may remove all obstacles that stand in our way, including his blessings. Uh, most of you know I just got back from China, and China is teaching the book of Revelation. And um, uh, most of you probably know in the book of Revelation, there in chapter 17, there's this picture or a, a symbol, a vision that John has of this harlot dressed in, in, uh, uh, dressed in fine scarlet linen adorned with gold and jewels and fine pearls. And that represents uh, in the book worldly or false religion, worship practices. Uh, And what I didn't know, and what you might not know, is that that image uh, of the harlot is pulled from Ezekiel chapter 16. Listen to this. Listen, in, in Revelation, the harlot is adorned with gold and silver and pearls and jewels. And listen to Ezekiel 16. Really, this is God talking about Israel. And he says, I made my vow to you and entered into covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk, and I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. And thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. And you grew exceedingly beautiful through the splendor 
that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord. What's tragic about that, when I put those two visions together, it's, a, it's what God is saying to Israel is, I, I, I bestowed upon you all these wealth and blessings and privileges and beauty and splendor and those very things you took and twisted them to worship yourself on worship other gods and abandon me and to, to, to glorify yourself above uh, and beyond your worship of God to really, those very things that God gave to Israel are what she used uh, or were the snares that are entrapped her that she began to worship or, or use to worship herself. And that's the tragedy of it is that God's blessings became spiritually dangerous to God's people. And it's really the same picture in the book of Revelation. Uh, and so what happens? What do you do? What does a good parent do when the blessings you give your children become a serious risk and a danger to them? What do you do, what do, you do when your son gets his driver's license and then comes home the next week with a ticket for doing 120 miles an hour in a school zone? Does he keep the driver's license? Does he keep the car? Nope. You pull that privilege back. Why? Because he's not ready to, he can't handle it and it's become a danger to him. I saw an intervention show once where there was this, this pastor's daughter, scary, who had become so rebellious that her parents like revoked, took away her privileges one by one until she had, a, her room was empty and they took, the final thing is they took her door off. And so she was just sitting on the floor of her empty room with a couple of pairs of clothing and the door off of her thing. And it actually, in this show, it turned her around because her parents, who loved her, took away privileges one by one uh, to bring her back to her senses. And I think that's the point that we see, the point that Israel sees in this last chapter is that God has every right to take us back down to zero when his blessings and privileges become the very things that ensnare or trap us or cause us uh, harm, when his blessings become dangerous and not out of spite and not out of punishment because that's what a good parent does. Look at Israel. Israel, the categories of loss that they experienced in this chapter that they kind of sum up. They lost their inheritance. They lost their freedom or their ability to self-rule. They lost uh, law and safety and order. They lost economic stability and security. They lost the strength of the family unit. They lost their social status. They lost their respectability. Uh, And worse of all, I think, is they lost in the midst of that a sense of God's presence and power in their lives because they'd become dulled They'd become drugged by all of these conveniences that took them away. Uh, and God left them. Maybe the scariest verse in the whole thing is when, he, when, it, when it, says, uh, it says, we gave a hand to Egypt and Assyria. What that saying is that leading up to their destruction, 
Israel had put all their trust in these political alliances with Egypt and Assyria, and Egypt and Assyria had proven to be completely unreliable uh, and left them uh, to be left them to be slaughtered. And now, in the aftermath of all that, the only place they can go to seek refuge and become a refugee and seek bread is in Egypt and Assyria. In other words, God has left them nothing but their own chosen, unreliable resources. There's this book called The Privilege of Persecution. And uh, that's a great book. It really talks a a lot about persecution. And one of the the questions that is raised in the book is the author says, he says, rather than, you know, we ask ourselves in the West, especially as American Christians, we ask ourselves, why, why are Christians in other countries being persecuted? For example, why are Christians in China being persecuted? As Western, uh, you know, Westerners, in the midst of all of our privilege, we think to ourselves that that's just, uh, that's horrible. That mystifies us. Why, why is God allowing these people to be persecuted? In, in the book, he says, the book, it says, maybe a better question we should be asking is, why are we not being persecuted? Why are we not? And for a long time, I used to think, uh, well, we aren't. We aren't being persecuted at all, and that's a problem. We need to get out there and start doing some stuff to get some persecution going. Or, you know, we need to... <laughs> Let's do this, right? You know what I'm saying? We need to, like, we need to... Like, the reason we're not being persecuted is because we're, like, hiding out. But I don't think that's entirely true anymore. I think the real answer is that we are being persecuted uh, in a very substantial and heavy way, but it's a subtle way, a way that's not obvious, uh, and it's also a way that, in my opinion, is, is way more devastating to the church. In China, it's easy to understand where you're getting, uh, where you're getting persecuted by the state power. It's very, it's very obvious what's happening. You go to jail. Uh, if you, you, know, you profess your faith, you, you uh, go to the wrong church, you, you witness in public in the wrong place, you minister to the wrong people, the government comes in and takes you to jail. It's very obvious. But in the West, there's a much more subtle and much more devastating form of persecution that lifts, that lays upon the church. And let me, let me give you an example. There was my tour guide, uh, uh, tour guide, a local girl from, uh, a woman from one of the local churches was telling me, we were driving to the Great Wall, and she was telling me how excited she was because there was a three-day weekend coming up, uh, a big holiday, Chinese national holiday, and she was so excited because her whole church was getting together to go and, um, to, to go and to meet up at this hotel, and they were going to hang out together for three days and study theology and be basically catechized. And she was like, she just couldn't wait to get there. She was just like, this is so great. I can't believe we get a three-day weekend. And this is what we're going to do. My whole church family is going to get together. And I thought to myself, as she was telling me this, I was like, man, what would happen if we, like, President's Day weekend, you know, we decided, we, like, said, hey, we're all going <laughs> to, 
we're gonna all going to go to the, down to the town and country for three days straight and, like, catech- and have catechism classes. You know, any church in America, what would happen? I mean, probably not much. <laughs> I'm afraid. I mean, Nisa's, Nisa's like, you should do it. See. <laughs> and maybe we will. Maybe we will. Um, we have a friend's church, and they, they, inspired by China, decided to do, start doing this thing called Secret Church, where they would teach the Book of Romans in like one day, uh, thinking that nobody would come. And actually, it, became, it like was standing room only. People loved it. So that's always, that's always been on our radar. So maybe we'll do that. And maybe I'm uh, just blowing things out of proportion with this. But here's my point. My point is, that's not... That's not usually, that wouldn't be the first option for us to think that the, the, the most joyous use of our time would be to go and stay at a hotel with our church family. And not a conference, not with a bunch of rock star speakers, not like a Western theology conference, but our church family, that we would all get together and just be with one another and study the Bible together, that's just not on the top 10 list for almost anybody. And why is that? It's because there's a thousand other uh, just subtle, self-indulgent things that we have at our fingertips that are constantly calling us and distracting us away. And that, that's the persecution. That's what I'm convinced of. That's how the devil has, is working us. In other countries, it may be different. But here, he's working us through our prosperity and uh, presenting us with all these things that dull us, dull our senses, and in the process causes us to drift away just enough to where we don't even realize how joyful that would be for us all to get together and worship together for a whole weekend. And it, ca- it, 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 it affects us. And you can't see that you can't see that here in the bubble. You have to totally leave the bubble and see it from the outside, to even get a glimpse of that reality, which is why I'm really grateful that God allows me to go to China to see those things. And I don't say that to like shame us or make us feel bad, but just like, hey, if that's true and that's something that you can, I can see from getting outside the bubble, let's look at it. Maybe that's a, something that we could, you know, that we could benefit from. Um, so reality is we are being persecuted and that persecution comes in a very different form that looks like prosperity to us it looks like luxury to us it looks like privilege to us it looks like social standing and so when I see now in the church all those same categories of things being removed. Our political power, our social status, our reputation. Uh, when I see the overall breakdown of the family in, in, in our culture, and I say to myself, what's God doing? What's he doing to us? Is he punishing us? Or is he purifying us? And I think he's purifying us. And I think we should rejoice. Second big lesson. Second big lesson is sin makes cycles of lamentation necessary. Sin makes cycles of lamentation necessary. I want 
I want the process of sanctification to be like physical therapy. Where I, maybe I get hurt or there's something wrong with me, I go in to the physical therapist and we start slow and I do some movements and I learn the exercises and I build up my reps and I build strength and I become stronger than I was before uh, and I have this trajectory of, of one-to-one relationship between work and perseverance and progress till I get to the point where I can plant my flag of victory in that particular sin and move on to the next sin in life. That's what I want sanctification to be like. It's not, and it's not even that I want sanctification to be like. I constantly lie to myself that that's what it is like. It's worse. It's actually worse than just a wish. It's not like I'm sitting there going, man, I wish it was like that. That's not what happens. I'm actually over here going, this is totally what it's like. (laughs) Totally, and I'm going to handle it. (laughs) But the reality is, (laughs) reality is that sanctification is more like treating a chronic disease. There's not really any one-to-one relationship uh, or, or constant relationship between struggle and healing. There are progress, moments of progress and then there's sometimes unforeseen just moments of, dis, of, of, of um, setback. Sometimes for no good reason. Like, how did that even happen? I was doing my reps. <laughs> I was taking my medicine and the same, it just overcame me again. Why does that happen? It's because it's like a chronic disease. Sometimes it just flares up and you have setbacks. Sometimes it just happens like that. And so, look, what's the point? The point is if I insist, if I insist on sanctification being a, like, physical therapy, what's going to happen to me? I'm going to get discouraged. Uh, I'm going to be forced to put on a mask. I'm going to be forced to fake it in front of all of you uh, because I believe that I should be farther along than I am and it must be something about my regiment or my reps or my exercises that's faulty and I'll be discouraged. But if I think about it like a chronic illness, I can be hopeful, I can still struggle, I can still... uh, engage in all of, uh, in exercises, but I can be realistic. And I can also know what the disease is like. There can be sudden setbacks that have no seeming... Uh, they just come out of nowhere and I can't really tie them together with anything. And I can continue on the road to health. So, look, all that to say this. When we look at the history, this is... This story that we're reading at the, in Lamentations or the, the songs of lament that are describing this situation in Israel of, of, of them being completely overrun uh, by enemies uh, and just stripped of everything that they had is not the only time this happens in Scripture. It is a recurring over and over and over again theme. I mean, that really starts with the fall with Adam and Eve uh, and then from there, uh, 
the flood, the Tower of Babel, the Exodus, the Golden Calf, the Wilderness Wanderings, uh, the, the Judges, over and over and over again. There's this pattern where Israel rebels against God. God sends oppressors to depress her. It presses Israel to the point where she repents. And then when she repents, God sends deliverance. And then the next judge, repeat over and over and over again. The judges are these mini cycles of this pattern that happens over and over again in the life of Israel. After the judges, um, the, temp- the first temple complex at Shiloh, we don't talk about this a lot, but the first temple complex was completely overrun by the Philistines in the same way. It, it, was, a, it was a total disaster. Uh, what else? First and second kings, oppressors coming in again as the nation falls into disrepair. And finally, the northern kingdom falls. The southern kingdom falls. That's the event we're talking about now. And then it doesn't end there again. In 70 AD, the Romans destroy Jerusalem again. There are these cycles of lament that go all through Israel's history over and over and over again. Uh, Israel rebels. God revokes her privileges. Israel repents. God delivers her over and over again. Why? Just to prove a point, Usually when we talk about this, I say it's to prove a point that Israel is unfaithful. You cannot be saved by the law. And that's true. That's part of it. But that's not all of it. There's another aspect to it, and that is that cycles of lamentation in the midst of a fallen world are just a necessary part of God's parental care for his children. That's just how it is. It's not physical therapy. You don't get to do your reps and get stronger and have everything go fine. There are constant setbacks. Our sin flares up. Uh, We are constantly in rebellion against God and in his parental care for us, we experience these cycles of of, of lament, cycles of rebellion and oppression, repentance and deliverance. And that's even... I'm talking about, I mean, the covenantal relationship with Israel has ended. There's no, nothing like that with the United States, but God still has that relationship with his church and with us. And even in our own lives, we can see those cycles happening. We'll have, we'll be, you know, we'll be in a period of spiritual strength and then this rebellion just flies out of nowhere and then there's like, consequences and then there's repentance and then there's deliverance and that cycle happens over and over again even in our own lives and the key word here the key word in that is God's parental care not God's judgmental care (laughs) because when that happens the first thing we think of is I'm being punished but that's not it This is God's parental care over us. It's the treatment, the corrective for the chronic nature of our sin. Uh, And God's, listen, God's discipline on your life is one of the surest signs of salvation there is. Hebrews 12 says that those he loves, he disciplines. If you have no discipline, be afraid. 
that is a good sign if God is disciplining you. Uh, Also, our lament, our lament over our sin is another sure sign of salvation. That is a sign of spiritual life. Uh, I've had to counsel people in the past where it was clear that they were lamenting over the loss of their sin, not lamenting over their sin. And that was dangerous. A scary, a scary thing. That's not what I'm talking about. But if we are truly lamenting over our sin, if we're at the place where Israel is in chapter 5 of Lamentations, lamenting over our sin and looking to God, that is a sure sign of salvation and and a source of hope and encouragement for us. Uh, and it also means this. It means that it means that sanctification is more about smoothing out the cycles than eliminating them. In other words, you know, some, maybe your cycle's like this. And so the goal of sanctification is to smooth them out. <laughs> Longer periods of obedience, shorter periods of disobedience, but not to eliminate them. It's just not going to happen in this life. Which means, which means, and this is important, this has been super encouraging to me as well, is that when we see that, we see that God is active in our discipline, that God, it is God's, that the cycles of of lament in our lives are God's parental care for us, then we can know that the whole, the process of sanctification isn't so much what we do for God as it is what God does for us. Think about that. The whole thing, the whole process of sanctification, you, you know, even in our failure uh, we tend to think, man, I gotta straighten up. I gotta get, I gotta get better in order for God. If I gotta do this for God, but really, the process is God sanctifying us to give us the blessing of shorter patterns. And so, like uh, these cycles of lamentation are necessary reality of the fallen world. They're a source of lament but not despair. There's one more important lesson that this teaches us. The third lesson is that God is faithful to his covenant promises even when we're not. Here's why I think this final chapter is a prayer, is, 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 a, is a prayer of desperation, but it's also a prayer of acceptance in, in Israel being still in the aftermath of all they've suffered and looking to God, it's because in this, the final part of this chapter is this prayer of desperation from this people. They've settled into the aftermath of God's parental discipline and they are now, that they are praying at all is remarkable and a remarkable evidence of faith. Uh, And they are people who are keenly aware that God did not owe them anything, but they are also equally keenly aware that God was their only hope. And so listen to what they ask for in the end of this desperate cycle of prayer. First, they ask for God, they they ask, first they remember God's unchanging nature and they call out to him, but you, O Lord, 
reign forever, and your throne endures to all generations. And next they call upon and remember, called on God to remember his promises to them. When they say, why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? They're remembering that God has promises to them. Otherwise, they, why would they even, they wouldn't be saying it like that. Why would they, they were, they're calling to God to remember that he had made these promises to, the, to them. Listen, listen to this from Jeremiah. This is one of the promises that were in the back of their minds as they were calling upon God not to forget them forever. God had made this promise. He says, Thus says the Lord, If the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. In other words, he's invoking like these creation ordinances and, and, and uh in this section and saying if you can count out all the stars and measure all all the heavens it would take even if you would have to do that before I would cast off Israel no matter what they have done and Israel remembering these promises is calling upon God to remember them and then finally they ask to be restored to relationship not to be restored to to riches when they ask to be restored, they say, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. And in that, they recognize that only God can restore them. They cannot restore themselves. And in the very end, the very last thing they say is, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. That's kind of scary. That last verse is like an open-ended question. It's just hanging there. Where there's, they're not sure. In fact, to this day, when this is read in the synagogue, they read verse 21 again after 22 because it's so terrifying they cannot bring themselves to end the verse on the, with the possibility that God may have utterly rejected them forever. And so they say, uh, and so they say in the readings in the synagogues, they say, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored and renew our days of, as of old. It's a big hanging question at the end of this song, this song of this fifth song of lament. And so the, the, really the question is, does God do it? You're left to answer that question or you're left to ponder that question. Out of everything that we've learned from this, this book and five chapters of Israel suffering for their sin that they brought upon themselves, about their devastation being actually an act of God's justice in the world, uh, of the idolatry, of their abandonment of God, of them taking all of the riches and beauty and wealth and esteem that God had given them and then using that as power to to defy God and glorify themselves. After all of that and after all of this history of Israel from the fall through all of these times, all of these cycles of lament, all of these cycles of Israel's rebellion, you've got to ask yourself, not only does God do it,
but should God do it? Should he do it? He knows what they're going to do next. We know what they're going to do next. You know what you're going to do next as you pray for forgiveness. God, I'm never going to do this again. Promise. Liar. Yes, you are. And you know it. Should God forgive them? Should he forgive us? It's an honest question. Israel laments that our dancing has been turned to mourning and our crown has fallen from our head. For 600 years, they wondered whether God was going to actually restore them and answer their prayers. And what they had to hang on to, the only thing they had to hang on to were God's promises. As I was writing this sermon, I realized that this would be a perfect Advent sermon because Israel is left waiting for the Lord. They're crying out, waiting for Messiah to come, waiting for God to fulfill his promises. And in retrospect, we can see and we know that God actually answered or gave the promise and the answer to Israel's lament hundreds of years before they actually said this. When Israel lamented, our dancing has been turned to mourning, our crown has fallen from our head. In Isaiah 61, hundreds of years before this, God promised, or he said this, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, and the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And they shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations, and they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations for many generations. And for almost 600 years, Israel waited in tension and in doubt and in anxiety. Is God going to rebuild Until one day in a synagogue in Nazareth, one of the local boys got up and read that very same passage, except when he was done, he sat down and said to all the rabbis and all of the elders in Israel in attendance, he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. (laughs) Boom. Mic drop. (laughs) Of course, that was Jesus. What did he mean? That he was the temple of God. And that in him, God was going to repair the breach. He was going to restore the devastation. He was going to rebuild the temple of Israel and fill it full of bricks, of living bricks of the saints whom we are into a temple of God where God would live in in us and all of those things 
that he just said about us would be true. That he has given us a beautiful headdress instead of the ashes of mourning of this world. He's given us the oil of gladness, the Holy Spirit, instead of the mourning of the suffering of this world and our own sin. He's given us the garments of praise, the righteousness of Christ that we put on like a robe of righteousness instead of the spirit of faintness, of the the spiritual weakness that our sin causes us to suffer. Instead, we are even now clothed in the strength and the righteousness of Jesus so that God may be glorified, so that we may be called oaks of righteousness, oaks of righteousness. We may be saplings right now, but God's watering us, taking care of us, and growing us. And the promise is we will be oaks of righteousness. And so in a certain sense, these things are all true of us. That's what Jesus bought for us on the cross. And those things can never be taken away. And they will not be taken away. However, we too, like Israel, have to wait for their fullness to come. And in the midst of that, we are suffering in these cycles of lament. Yes, caused by our own sin. Yes, caused by the fact that we are in a fallen world and have fallen natures. But in the midst of all that, it is not God's judgment on us. It is God's parental care. And he promises to see us through and to care for us through that until all of these things are no longer just promises, but reality. That's our hope. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we live in a world of brokenness and despair. Our sin grieves us, and we thank you, Lord, that our sin causes us to lament We praise your name for every ounce of godly sorrow that you work in our hearts. And we pray, Lord, that it would help us to be like little children who just run to you and cling to you and try not to be too big or too sophisticated. I pray that you would help us to give up any foolish ideas of friendship with the world and instead to cling to you and to see the preciousness of your word and the preciousness of worship, the preciousness of prayer, the preciousness of fellowship with one another, and the preciousness of these promises that you have given us that seem so far away, but they're really not. They're really not, Lord. We'll be with you soon, one way or another. So Lord, help us through this evil age to be faithful, Uh, help us to stick close to you, to know your love and fatherly care for us, Uh, and to wait and to stand for that day when you come and rescue us. In Jesus' name, amen.